Kia ora, and welcome to the New Zealand History Podcast channel, where you will find talks on Aotearoa New Zealand history, culture, and society. These talks are organised by Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, with the support of the Alexander Turnbull Library. They are recorded live, either via Zoom or in person at Tipuna Matauranga or Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand. Pohihiri, Pohirarama, Pohutifakaaro, Pohutitangata, Pohutiaroha, Te Pohihiri ni i a tātou, Māori ora ki a tātou, Humi e, hui e, tāheki e. Nau mai, haere mai, ki te pūnanga ma tāoronga o Aotearoa. Ki ara koutou, ko Kate Jordan tōko ingoa, hi pohitari no Manatu Taonga. Kia ora everyone. My name is Kate Jordan. Uh, I'm a historian at Manatu Taonga, uh, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. Uh, I'm incredibly happy to introduce this wonderful new book uh, and our panellists today. The book is, of course, Making Space, a history of New Zealand women in architecture. It explores the challenges and triumphs of women in the male-dominated sphere of architecture through a collection of nearly 50 essays. The book is really incredible because it's both wide-ranging and yet really detailed. It covers from 1840 all the way up to 2020 and yet still takes the time to look in detail at many women's careers. Um, So today on our panel, we have the book's editor uh, and author of many of the chapters, Elizabeth Cox. Uh, We have authors Mary Jane Duffy and uh, Divya Pudashotham. Uh, So Elizabeth uh, is Senior Historian at Manatu Taonga Ministry for Culture and Heritage. Uh, She also has her own consultancy specialising in architectural history uh, and social and women's history. Uh, Mary Jane Duffy is a Tangata Tiriti writer based in Pōniki, Wellington, uh, working in the education sphere. Uh, Her master's thesis was based on the work of Margaret Staples Hamilton, later known as Margaret Munro, who we'll hear a great deal about. And uh, Divya Pudashotham is a registered architect and associate principal at Warren and Marnie. Uh, she has led many large projects within the Wynyard Quarter Innovation Precinct uh, and recently converted, completed her chair, her term as co-chair of Architecture and Women New Zealand. So please welcome our lovely panel. Elizabeth was co-editor, uh, was editor, sorry, as we mentioned. Elizabeth, can you give us a, a quick introduction to the book and how it came about? Okay, so um, I'm not quite sure how long ago it was because I try not to remember how long it's taken me to write this book. Um, I uh, found a little biography of um, the very first registered architect in New Ze- woman architect in New Zealand, Lucy Greenish. So Lucy was a Wellington architect. She came here about the turn of the century and then uh, her brother was an architect as well and she managed to get involved in a Wellington architecture firm and um, and registered as an architect in 1914 at the time when all of the first um, registrations were um, taking place in 1914. So registration is something that will come up um, quite a lot, so I might as well explain it now. Uh, so um, as Divya explains it, it's kind of like being a being admitted to the bar if you're a lawyer. So it allows you to call yourself an architect and use that word for yourself. And um, 19... Um, 14 was the first time that the qualifications of a whole series of people who 
were what we might call builders and engineers and contractors and what we would also call architects now were assessed to decide if they were suitably qualified. And Lucy Greenish um, was the only one, only woman of those who became qualified. So I saw a small biography of her and decided to stalk her life and that was what began this whole project. Uh, so I very quickly found that Lucy... Um, uh, had had an illegitimate baby after having worked as an architect for some time. She, um, her career in Wellington had been disrupted by the First World War and she went to Queenstown to become a governess. And somehow while she was away, she became pregnant as um, in her mid-30s which as a single woman, which must have been a terrible surprise. And she went to Dunedin, uh, she went to Australia to have her baby. And while I was doing this research, I discovered that this baby was still alive in her 90s, still living in Australia, because Lucy had um, had to leave her behind. This is uh, something a lot of New Zealand women did um, if they became pregnant when they were single. So I contacted this baby, now an old lady, um, her family, and her family said that she had been told that her mother was a governess and that no one knew who her father was. Um, and so I was able to tell this family that actually Lucy was New Zealand's first registered architect. So that kind of kicked off the whole project. Um, the photos that you're seeing here um, actually were um, photographs that I found um, just before the book went to print. Uh, they had been stored away in a New South Wales library and I only just got hold of them in time. So that's where I started my project and then it got bigger and bigger from there as you'll hear. <laughs> <laughs> so part of getting bigger was having other authors come in and offer their expertise. How did that come about and how did you go about recruiting other authors? Yeah, so being a historian, I thought um, when I decided to make the project bigger that maybe I'd just come up to the Second World War or something nice and nice and um, contained like that. But I managed to get Massey University Press on board and um, they convinced me to come up to the present day uh, and so that made the project a much bigger project, but I think a much more satisfying project because it meant that I've been able to assess um, the entire the entire involvement of women from the very beginning right up until the present day. And there's not that many projects that assess any profession in that in that in that way. Yeah, so I think it's been very successful. So the first impetus to get other people involved was that I didn't want to write about the Maori architects, so I convinced Deirdre Brown to get involved, and she wrote a wonderful chapter about Maori woman architects, and then I got more and more people involved, um, including Mary Jane, because Mary Jane was really the only um, in-depth study that had been done of a woman architect before I started, you know, of a real substantial length. And then more and more people got involved. Um, Cherie, who's here, um, <laughs> uh, agreed to write about the woman who designed buildings in the 1840s, well before Lucy. Um, yeah, and it just, just got bigger and bigger from there. So there are 30 women, all of the authors are women, and there's academics and uh, practicing architects like Divya and um, students and practitioners of other sorts. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like a good way to move on to our next speaker.
and hear a little bit more about Margaret. Mary Jane, can you tell us a little bit more about Margaret, her life as an architect? Sure. Uh, kia ora koutou. Um, Margaret, uh, when I met her, was uh, in her, I was trying to figure it out before, I think she was in her late 70s. Um, and she'd uh, she'd been retired for a little while, but was still um, very kind of engaged in um, architecture, the profession, um, and I believe was still even um, involved in some projects. Um, and she, um, I guess I, I'd when I was studying at Canterbury University, uh, doing art history, um, architectural history was part of the uh, was part of the program. And um, and so there was this. Uh, someone introduced me to this mysterious file in uh, one of the filing cabinets, which was Margaret's file, <laughs> which turned out to be quite empty when I got to open it. Um, but yeah, when I was casting around for um, subjects um, for my uh, masters, um, I yeah, I just I remembered the file, and I and I'd also been um, really interested in kind of feminist subjects, so it was it was it was quite a sort of. Or, natural kind of pathway to Margaret and then I guess through Ian Lockhead um, who was um, at Canterbury at that time I, I probably got Margaret's contact details and and um, called, phoned her up and, and went to meet her um, and she um, she that first meeting was kind of amazing because it was like she'd been waiting for someone to tell her story to because uh, she just like I, I'd come totally unprepared without a notebook or a tape recorder or anything and, and she just wanted to start talking straight away and so she did and I had to kind of like yeah say okay all right well we'll have to you know <laughs> tie a whore we have to um, save this uh up for when I can actually um be proper more properly prepared and so that was the beginning of like uh, eight interviews with her over that year um, in 1991 um, and um, so I found out a lot about her she um, she was through her mother um, she was related to Cecil Wood who was at that time um, one of Canterbury's um, most uh, kind of you know well-known um, architects he was quite famous for uh, church architecture and so she um, he uh, a sort of throwaway comment to her one day um, when she was I don't, probably about seven or eight and she'd shown him one of her drawings and he'd said, oh, look, that's great. You know, I'm going to keep a job for you in my office as an architect. And she she apparently had to ask her mother what an architect was, but um, she held on to that and she obviously um, – something it resonated with something in her and so she held on to this dream of becoming an architect and eventually left school um, and in 1932 um, entered his office um, so he employed her and then shared a whole lot of his staff because it was the beginning of the depression um, and they sort of worked together for a number of years until he was able to recover um, from the depression, et cetera. And um, so she was in his office for about 14 years. She had a little breakaway uh, during the war when she decided to go off to England and get training as lots of, of architects at the time did. So she had six months in England in the office of Brian O'Rourke, who was an a expat um, working over there. And then war broke out. I guess her family um, convinced her to come back and she came back into Cecil's office and then a bit later on, um, she ended up um, leaving. Um, I think they were super busy in the office. And um, interestingly, um, the person that um, Cecil decided to employ 
as the help um, to, you know, help them with this massive workload they had was a young untrained person from um, Christ College, Miles Warren. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so they, um, Bob Munro, um, who, who was Margaret's colleague at that time, and Margaret were kind of furious at this decision that he they were overloaded with work. And he, instead of, you know, employing someone who knew stuff um, and could help out with the workload, he employed this, you know, schoolboy. And um, and so they left um, in a in a sort of um, well, I guess it was a it was probably a you know a, um, a calculated risk to um, to and Bob set up his own practice. Margaret in the meanwhile got some other work, and then eventually Bob invited her to come into practice with him, even though she couldn't technically practice as an architect. Please tell me to stop talking. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'll I'll go on, um, but anyway, just to cut a long story short, she um, Bob ended up dying. Uh, they they were in practice for about fourteen years together. Um, Bob ended up dying, and she was in the position of not being registered. Um, and so, what what would she do? Well, um, she she talked to some people that she knew, and they said, "Well, look, you've got all this by this time. It was like thirty years' experience." So you'll be able to come registered. And so she did. Uh, she failed her um, some exams in concrete and engineering, which she was always felt she never, never got her head around. So the condition was that she would always have to consult an engineer when she was um, uh, doing her designs, but got, got herself registered. And, yeah, and then worked for uh, a number more years um, as um, Mrs. in small print, M.S. Munro. Um so, yes, that's the potted story of Margaret. That was one of my favourite quotes that she said to you was that she deliberately put the misses in small print. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So she was quite unusual in that time of being in sole practice. Um, how did she survive doing that? Well, I think she really had her family. She must have had family support to, to you know, to support her dream. Um um, and she actually, she was also really, she was really ambitious because uh, even though um, one thing I should have mentioned was that um, she started, she thought, well, look, um, you know, I'm in, the, uh, in C C Cecil's office, so I'm going to uh, do what other the males in the office are going to do and I'm going to go off and, and do the training such as it was at that time to um at the Christchurch College of Arts, I think that's what it's called, um, and go off and do the subjects that my colleagues in the office are doing. And so she went off and did um, the study um, that that um, you could do at that time. Um, but I think, um, well, I know that Cecil was like, well, you know, why are you doing that? You're a pretty young girl. You should be off having fun. So he, um, he really discouraged her from actually carrying on the rest of the process, which would have seen her um, enrolled through the, I think was called then the University of New Zealand, um, which uh, was beginning to, it was, a, it was a transition period where they were beginning to take over the sort of um, education and um, regis registration. I might be straying into slightly uh, wobbly territory here, but anyway, they were taking over the training of architects, which was really, if you couldn't be at uh, the University of Auckland, was really a apprenticeship style system and quite onerous. They had a, you know, there was, um, yeah, there was a lot of study, a lot of um, things they had to do as these sort of apprentices. Um, but 
your sister was going, well, you know, you don't have to do that, Margaret. You know, you're fine here. And so he uh, he really discouraged that. But um, she nonetheless, you know, carried on, <laughs> got involved with an atelier, which was the students set up to help them with their studies and won prizes. Um, so, yeah, she was she was ambitious. And I think with her family support, the, her first architectural project was her family's house in uh, Papua Nui. So, yeah, I think family support was the thing that um, got her through. And then later being married, she later married Bob Munro and so was able to practice. So, yeah, had those kind of supports. Thank you. And as we said earlier, this book comes all the way up to 2020, uh, which is relatively unusual for a history, um, but it was important to include the voices of young architects currently in the profession. Uh, and Divya, you took on the challenge of writing about your work and that of your peers. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing your chapter and, and what you learned while you were doing it? Yeah, Kira, um, thank you. Um, I guess um, I'm surrounded in, a, you know, in the company of um, people who are very adept at writing about people in history and I um, don't come from that background so um, Elizabeth you you approached me to write this chapter and I was it was a very intimidating task because the burden of telling other people's stories um, especially when um, they're you know practicing and quite active um, is a huge responsibility to bear so I was very hesitant but on the other hand what it did do was connect me to a network of people that I um, were also going on similar journeys as I was, and it, it, there was there would be no other opportunity really for me to meet with them. This was nationwide, so I was speaking to Jane Rooney in Christchurch, and um, you know a lot of the staff in Studio Pacific in Wellington, um, likewise some of my colleagues in Auckland. So it kind of uh, stretched me across there, and um, there was an incredible consistency that I found in all of their stories. Um, the thing to note about what where what, the background that I'm writing about is women in larger scale commercial practices. And so the difference there is that they typically end up having quite a long gestational period of, um, say, two years of design and two years of construction. So the timeline of commitment to that process and that project and the tenacity you need um, goes from, you know, like a um, six-month program, which might be typical for a house, uh, to like a four-year thing um, and in, a, in the context where the role of either a primary caregiver ends up typically being the woman um, historically has meant that that four-year period has always been quite hard to commit to or um, opportunities are strategic opportunities are missed as a result um, so what happens over time when you get to senior leadership positions is that we don't have that many visible role models or um, people that have gone through the tra trajectory of that um, process. And the thing about registration, which you've spoken about um, a few times now, is that it brings with it a level of independence that I think typically ends up being out of your control. So in a four-year-long process, um, if your client's um, kind of funding falls through or your tenants don't end up, that has a personal impact on your journey to registration, which can be quite complex in a um, when you're trying to navigate commitments in your life. Um, so that, that kind of ended up being a, a version of what I spoke to and also the kind of incredible achievements that these women have um, done. What I did find through talking to them was the um, immense amount of collegiality that they all had because it always takes a team to build something like this 
um, together. And um, ironically, quite a few uh, women on that I spoke to were um, very hesitant to be named um, to be responsible for one of these projects because I can speak from that myself. Like you, you kind of end up working as a part of a team and then to be named as the person um, representing that project um, is a version of imposter syndrome and a version of trying to like, it's not actually me, it's actually a whole team of people, which we've always acknowledged, but um, that is all often e exactly why we choose to focus on visibility and actually making those stories visible because in your instance there, um, Margaret would have been, you know, shattered or co-authoring projects. But, you know, I think some of the words was um, her husband was definitely the boss of the of the practice. And so she was kind of secondary, but the contributions often remain invisible as a result of it. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's a it preamble to what I've been writing about. Yeah. And it leads to another question. You talk about visibility. During your studies, did you learn about a lot of the women who feature in this book about historic female architects? Yeah, this, I guess the short answer is no, none that I can kind of recall. Um, and I never remember that being an issue at the time because I think it, um, in university, your gender parity in architecture school is 50-50. So you've got 50% women. Um, in, um, and you don't really realize it. So for reasons like I was talking about earlier, when you get to kind of your early to mid-career um, and life starts to take over, um, that's when you really see the skew of like women to men. And so at the time that you're looking for role models is the moment that you realize there are so few of them. So even when trying to write a list of them, there are plenty of people that I haven't written about, but also, um, you know, there aren't that many women either practicing in large um, practices at the moment. It's rapidly changing, which is really exciting. Um, but at a senior leadership level, um, we're still, we, we have a way to go. We're still going to keep moving, keep changing. So looking back at visibility, Elizabeth, you covered a lot of the, the early chapters. Um, was it easy finding those early women architects or was it a lot of hard work? <laughs> so after I focused on Lucy, I kind of went back in time. So Lucy, as I said, was the first registered architect, but she wasn't actually the first qualified New Zealand architect, woman architect. And um, this is the first who's Kate Beath. So Kate was Kate Shepherd's niece. And um, she lived in Christchurch and she was part of that whole um, elite of cultural, well-educated um, women. And um, so Kate had been written about um, a little by Anne Calhoun, who's an art historian. But um, the, the, this is, Kate's a good example of, of the records and what happens if you don't look after them. So uh, unfortunately, the, um, some of the records have been kept by um, a fabulous um, family member in Waikanae, and I managed to get hold of some of those images, but some of the images have been stored away by a different family member, and it meant I couldn't get hold of them. So Anne was telling me that she'd seen particular plans by this um, by this architect, and I still haven't managed to get hold of them. And um, so in the book, I had to speculate about some of the um, houses that she may have designed because I never did get manage to get hold of um, her, um, um, her house plans. So um, whenever I work on these um, these older women, every time I looked at some architectural plans, I was desperate to see some initials on the bottom of a plan that showed that it was her that had designed it within the larger firm. But actually, it was incredibly difficult, and that was very rare to find. Um, what I did find 
amongst all my research is that actually there are a lot of women working as draftswomen and as architects within firms that we actually know really well. So a good example of that was Florence Field. I found Florence from this amazing article, which is called A Kitchen Designed by a Woman or Planned by a Woman, which was in a, a ladies' journal in 1923. So you can imagine how excited, knowing what excited I was to find this. And it's the description is all about the science of cooking and the science of cleaning and the, um, how carefully she had studied where, where your feet need to go when you're cooking and where your knees go when you're doing a particular task and how to clean things. And, and she had done a real a time and motion study basically about how to do the best of cleaning and then she had designed her house. Um, and so for many years, this article was the only thing that I found. And then somehow after many, many hours spent looking, um, hiding in plain sight on the National Library digital catalogue was was the house and um, I could tell from the plans that were in that article that this is the house that she designed so it's sitting on a Nelson on the um, this is um, up above that main road that comes into Nelson from the airport and so you can see how beautiful it is and um, and I studied and studied the map of Nelson on Google Maps and could not find this house and I thought it must have been pulled down and then one time I was talking to Ian Bowman, who's a conservation architect from Nelson, and I described it again and sent, it, sent him the photo and said, and he said, oh, I used to babysit in that house. And it's, <laughs> and it's right next door to me. I can see it out my window. Um, and oh, it's just, yeah, it was a pretty special day when um, that happened. And it just so happens that the people who own this house, their granddaughter is training to be an architect in Wellington and she contacted me with all sorts of circuitous routes and um, she sent me lots of beautiful photos of it. Um, so this is an example of, of, of the success of, of um, the sort of multifaceted research that you can do using family history and, and Google Maps and studying all sorts of things like that. And ringing up Ian Bowman. <laughs> so Christchurch features quite heavily in the book, um, both the the rebuild, which is a really lovely chapter, but also the earlier architects. There there appears to be quite a few female architects in Christchurch. Mary Jane, do you know why that might have been? Maybe because of the Canterbury College of Arts. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it's interesting that Margaret um, was at Rangi Ruru School and um, when she, you know, told them that she wanted to be an architect, they sort of cobbled together something pretty useless, but but they were supportive of the idea that she that she wanted to be an architect. They didn't poo-poo it and, you know, um, they, yeah, so um, maybe maybe that, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, Rangi Ruru is a pretty fancy school, so you obviously are of, a, you know, you're middle class if you're going to be there. Um, so I don't know, Elizabeth. Do you have any thoughts on on why Christchurch features? Yeah, I think it's that cultural sort of um, elite support. I guess um, there were actually some really significant women who went overseas in the 1930s um, from from Christchurch, and one of them became um, trained up. At, was one of the very first women to ever train at the archaeological. Architectural Association in London, and she helped design the Shakespeare um, Theatre in um, Stratford in the UK. So, yeah, there are a whole set of 
women, maybe it's that sort of if you see one, then you can support another. Mm. Um, Cecil Wood actually employed three different women at different times. So, yeah. <laughs> so touching on you can't be what you can't see, um, Divya, uh, the book has tried to ta- talk about diversity in a, a wider sense than just gender. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how you tackled it within your chapter? Yeah, so um, I guess in my time at Architectural Women, which is a non-profit organisation, they um, advocate for visibility and inclusiveness of, um, at the you know, the, at, starting with gender as a platform, but actually wanting to expand a little bit more. It's just gender is the easiest thing to start with um, because it often uh, receives a reaction. Um, but, you know, there's, there's kind of um, cultural uh, and social inclusivity that we still need to do. And in 2022, given our climate emergency, I think there are many ways of um, kind of tapping into, um, say, Indigenous, Indigenous knowledge to actually um, re, re-engage in how we're looking at designing what we look forward to. So um, diversity really like the gender is a subset of it and this book is a really important milestone to mark that because to that point of you know um I didn't necessarily learn any have any uh, educational input historically as to who women architects were um having a record of this now while this uh, you know there's a third of this that's very contemporary um going forward it actually records quite a significant history to then leverage from moving forward so um you know, I, I mentioned there's a really small subset of women working in um, larger practices, but it gets even smaller when you start looking at um, Indigenous architects and um, Pacifica, Māori and Pacifica women. Um, and that representation is growing, but at a really incredibly slow rate. But um, we we are optimistic, but um, there's, yeah, I feel like I'm ending everything with like there's work to be done, but um but it's an exciting kind of process we're in. It's important to remember, you know, we we haven't we haven't won yet. We've got to keep going forward. Um, so we will be taking questions from the audience, but I feel like I won't spring it on you right away. Um, so I'll ask Elizabeth one question while you guys can think about any questions you might like to ask. Um, so we've spoken a little bit about various oral history interviews. Elizabeth, was that a, a large part of the research? And how did you weave that into the project? Um, yeah, so I interviewed 27 women for this project, which is um, a, a pretty substantial time suck. You know, it, it really does eat up a lot of time. Um, uh, quite a lot of those interviews were done during COVID, so I, I had women trapped in their homes who had nothing better to do but to talk to me. <laughs> well, actually, that's not true because they were trying to run their practices and save their businesses at the same time. Um, and it was great because I did get to talk to them about COVID and a because it was a architects are often like the canary in the coal mine. They often, if a um, if a um, an economy is struggling, then architects often do badly first. And um, so there was a lot of very very stressful um, times for architects out there, particularly women running sole practices or small businesses. Uh, so I I used them. Um, liberally, actually, those interviews to really understand how women run their own businesses because I wanted it to be not just they built this and they built that, but I wanted to um, make it about how women run a business as well as being parents and all those sort of things. Yeah, so, um, and then I also, with people's permission, provided them to other authors where I could. 
So it was a really valuable part of the process. And you used one of Divya, you used one of those interviews in your chapter as well. How did you find that as part of your process? Really good. I feel like I was spying on their lives, like watching <laughs> another person's conversation. But um, um, uh, I used them for two, actually. So Alyssa Peter Hito um, and um, Catherine Skipper, who have um, been represented more than once in this book, um, and they have great stories to tell. So. Um, it was uh, really valuable having that record. And I think, um, actually, Elizabeth, I, I think you um, somehow convinced me to do one too. But it was, um, she just has this meaningful way of extracting your soul onto paper. So um, very thankful for those kind of opportunities to um, have those stories on record and actually a really valuable resource going forward when we are able to extract information from them. Thanks. Uh, I think I've given everyone a bit of time to think. So does anyone have any questions for our speakers today? Hi, I was going to ask about um, Lillian Crystal. Did you interview her? I don't know if she's still alive. Yes, so Lillian um, was written about by Linda Simmons, who's um, one of the authors that helped me with the book. And Lillian died um, quite recently, just this year, I think it was. And so she uh, so she was an Auckland architect who trained just after the Second World War and was really important in the Auckland scene of the um, sort of the post-war attempt to make the world a better place. And she, um, she was the daughter of the chap who set up the farmer's um, empire. So uh, she came from quite a wealthy background, but she she went off to Paris and um, and London and studied and worked over there, and then came back to Auckland. And she said she can, came down with a thump back to New Zealand life, but she set up her own um, her own practice on her own, and then married. Um, she got a student in to help her with her practice, and then they ended up marrying and working together. Um, but luckily we managed to show the draft of the chapter to Lillian before she died. So that was really lovely. And her family were really helpful in providing images for the book as well. So, yeah, she was great. Yes, th thanks. That's really interesting. Um, sounds like a great book. Um, I'm intrigued, though, by some of the slides that have been shown with no explanation of who built the buildings and stuff, um, particularly in Divya's section. Yeah, no, we actually had a talk uh, conversation about this. I was like, people are just going to see images of big buildings. <laughs> um, these are these are um, represented in the chapters by specific women that have been contributing to these projects. So they've either been leading it as project architects or have spoken to their experience on this project, forming quite a lot of their career. Um, and so there's, you know, the, this is um, specifically by Jazz Max, who um, is spoken about by. Evelyn Axton um, about a um, about the uh, responsibility of building a um, project that's representing New Zealand to the wider practice. So, I mean, there's a story behind each one of these. Um, Nelson Airport and um, Catherine O'Hare on uh, the first kind of base isolated. Uh, actually, I don't know if it was the first, but it was quite a highly complex project for her to be navigating um, in the Wellington uh, space. Um, and this is Wellington Airport, which you guys will know quite well. Um, that, uh, that that was um, project uh, architect was Catherine Skipper at Warren Amani as well. So um, they the explanations are in the chapter, but um, yeah, they are kind of snapshots of their career 
um, to say the least. I've got Cherie down in the middle. A question for Divya. Um, I just wondered, as an architect and as part of Architecture Plus Women, what's the initial reaction been to the book so far in terms of like, oh, yeah, we knew all this and now it's on paper, which is great, or people going, wow, we had no idea about some of this history or also what some of our colleagues have been doing, just kind of, yeah, contemporary response to the book. Yeah, so I think Architecture Women have been a long time kind of supporter of this project. Um, I think we remember, Elizabeth, getting you out to get your story out of Lucy um, maybe in 2000, I can't even remember, pre-pandemic, um, different time. But um, so some some of the, um, we've kind of known the content of the books coming out, but uh, but actually Linda Simmons, who's our co-founder and co-chair, ex-co-chair, um, who seems in my world like she's a mentor of mine, but also feels seems that she knows everything about everyone. But I saw her walking around with this book the other day and she's just kind of flipping through the pages and she's just like, there's so much in here that I just had no idea um, was happening. So there's no way that we ever knew. I think um, we're quite contemporary in how we're approaching what the current day kind of um, context is. But um, what these guys have put together is um, a wealth of knowledge that, extends far beyond was it 1840 that it starts um it's just never really been talked about before so that's a really exciting thing so all new stuff for us i have a, a question from online if that's all right you've done a lot of valuable research can it possibly now be stored in one location such as the turnbull library <laughs> <laughs> are you sure you didn't write that question yourself joan <laughs> <laughs> yes well um uh all of my oral history um, interviewees were asked whether they would be happy for me to lodge those interviews in the Turnbull. And I will go back and have another conversation with them and recheck all of that, but I am hoping that that will be part of what I do. Um, and my research notes, I guess, they're pretty messy, but I certainly could try. <laughs> yeah, but um, because I have benefited um, from the research of other people, I really understand the value of of storing research notes. I often come across collections of notes by historians that you get to plunder again, so I find that really useful. Um, aside from Mary Jane's um, big project in '93, there was a um, um, a big project by a collection of women architects done in 1993 looking for their own precedents and they have kept all that material and I use that a lot as well. So it would be really great to collect it all together. Mm. I was just wondering whether some of the authors had found in their research that um, there was much of a connection between some of the women architects and other people working in architectural, women working in architectural firms. Um, it kind of alluded to the influence of Rangiruru School and perhaps in the Christchurch milieu early on, but just did that come up very much or was it very much more like the individual, you know, that's what people found and it was hard to find connections between different women across the architectural scene? Yeah, I definitely think that Margaret was, yeah, working in isolation. I Yeah, I don't know that she, she didn't, I can't recall her talking about encountering other women architects. So, yeah, but that 
but there are photos in the book of, um, you know, groups of women at conferences and things. So I think um, historically that, you know, there might have been other opportunities for women to meet each other. But, you know, Margaret definitely had a sense of working in isolation, you know, gender isolation. Um, one quite good um, venue of employment for women was the Ministry for Works, Ministry of Works and the Public Works Department before that. And so they, as architects and as draftswomen, and so they um, saw a few more women um, than um, than perhaps women working individually in practices. Um, I think, you know, that 93 project that I mentioned, even as late as that in 93, the, the whole point of that was to attempt to create a sense of precedent and, and having peers, because even that late, they were still desperate to find that connection. Mm. Yeah. Um, and... Architecture Plus Women's existed for about 10 years now, hasn't it? So um, even that, you know, that's doing the same thing of trying to connect people together. Um, I do think it makes a big difference. Yeah, just finding that network. This is not the type of connection that you were asking about, but we just found yesterday that Jane Rooney, who's a woman I've written about, um, worked on an extension on Margaret Munro's original building, which is the St Andrew's um, Chapel. Um, which is a nice kind of roundabout circle um, as well. So maybe through time, over, over some time. There was another lovely connection uh, circle, which is um, the buildings at Scott Base. So the very first um, buildings that New Zealand built at Scott Base, the drafts woman on that project was, uh, the drafts person on that was a woman um, who I managed to talk to. She now lives, um, still lives in Tauranga. And then the, the second iteration of that um, was designed by a woman architect who um, still lives in Hamilton. And then now, of course, Scott Base is going through a great big project and there's women architects on that as well, so that's a really nice connection. Just on that, sorry, just one last plug for the Architecture Women database. Um, it's a really valuable resource, so if you or anyone here or you know any um, architects that are looking for a network, highly encourage them to sign up to that database or look for resources on there because there are many people willing to mentor or looking for mentors. Um, it's a really useful tool. I was just wondering um, regarding Margaret Hamilton's and uh, the photographs of the buildings that she designed, the, the houses in Christchurch, are they all still standing? Are they historic photographs or current photographs that they survive? Some of them, most of them hopefully survived the earthquake. Uh, good question about the earthquake. Cherie was our... Um, our woman on the ground um, doing a lot of that research, weren't you? Um, but you took a lot of contemporary photos. I think most of the houses are still standing. That's my understanding. Sheree, did you want to comment on that further? Uh, just for background, Sheree is another author from the book. Uh, yeah, so all the houses that there were photos of, of Margaret's work are still standing and those photos were taken about two years ago on an annoyingly grey, cloudy day. Um, but yeah, they, and I had the privilege of meeting the owners of all of them, but particularly one lovely man who lived in what I think of as the chocolate box house, because it looks like a beautiful house on an old fashioned chocolate box. He told me that he had grown up in that area and he used to drive past the house 
all the time and just loved it. And then as an adult, it went up for sale and he was able to buy it and live in it. And he just, he loves that house. And he had the old plans up in the garage roof in a plastic bag, which in an archival sense was like, oh, um, but the beautiful hand colored plans that Margaret did. And he and his wife met Margaret before she died and talked to her about her work. And that was really special. So I imagine lots of people who've contributed to the book have had that experience, really special experiences because buildings are about people. And I think, yeah, for me, that was really amazing. Thank you, Shereen. Um, So now I'd like to thank our speakers and like to join, uh, invite you to Oh my gosh, it's been a long day. Uh, I'd like to thank our speakers, I'd like you to too. Uh, so let's have a round of applause for them. Uh, so we'll close with Karikia. Te whakaetanga e, te whakaetanga e, tēnei te kaupapa ka ia, tēnei te wānanga ka ia, te māori o te kaupapa ka whakamoe, te māori o te wānanga ka whakamoe. Koa kiaronga, koa kiraro, homie, huie, tahekie. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to this New Zealand history podcast from Manatu Taonga. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you're looking for other content about New Zealand history, check out earlier talks in the series. You can find them on your favourite podcast channels. Just search for New Zealand history. Mātiwa!